Okay, so 1 Samuel 15. It is in the uh, bulletin sermon handout. There won't be a lot on screen, so you're going to either want to grab a Bible from the back or follow along in the, um, in the sermon notes. Uh, we are in the book of 1 Samuel. That's a book of history, and history books are really, really important, uh, regardless of whether you're talking about history books in the Bible or just history books, because you can learn from those who have gone before you. And so it's kind of like a life hack where you can kind of say, hey, I don't need to repeat all the same mistakes. I can learn from the mistakes of other people. And that's part of the reason why God selected out these people and events and stories from salvation history. And so we're reading this history not just as um, an exercise in you know, trying to stuff our head with random dates and facts so we can win it like Bible trivia night. But as Romans 15 says, Everything was written in the past in order to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, they will have hope. So there are these lessons that come from the history books in the Old Testament. So they take place before Jesus. But they reveal our need that gets answered in Jesus. They point to Jesus and they intersect with uh, modern challenges in ways that are amazing. So we need to pay attention. 1 Corinthians 10.6 says these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil as they did, referring to the Israelites during dark times. And there's nothing new under the sun. So when we're reading these history books, we might see behavior that we are like roll our eyes at all the way to say that's terrible, that's awful. But that's supposed to also be a bit of a mirror to say, "Eh, you know, be careful. You put the right circumstances together, you might be tempted to go down this road. So learn from that. Cling to God. Pursue Him. um, Learn from the mistakes of other God-fearing people in the past. Now we're in chapter 15, and chapters 13, 14, and 15 in 1 Samuel are sort of magnifications of a progressive failing of the first king of Israel, Saul. Saul starts strong. He's anointed by God. He's chosen by God. He's given all kinds of advantages. He has Samuel beside him to coach him. But in chapters 13, 14, and then 15 today, we see this progressive decline, this deterioration. We see in all the ways that Saul might have looked the part, when the pressure's on, when decisions have to be made, when the authenticity or realness of his relationship with God has to come to bear in a situation, it gets exposed as something either false or thin or very, very immature. So let's read through this text because this is the culminating text where God essentially says, I'm going to remove you from the kingship and choose another. So Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over the people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. And this is in reference to that famous Bible story where Moses holds a staff up and if the staff is held up, then the Israelites are winning. And when Moses' arm gets tired and the staff falls down, they lose. So there's two people help prop up Moses' arm and Israel wins the the battle. That's a battle against the Amalekites. Verse 3, it says, Now go, so this is, God's message through Samuel to Saul. So go and attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children, infants, cattle, sheep, 
camels, donkeys. So we have to pause here for a second because this is one of the recurring texts in the last 10 years that come up pretty consistently when someone wants to find a gotcha text in the Old Testament that says, oh, see, this is the kind of God you worship, a God who would command genocide. This is disgusting. I don't need to read anything else in the Bible. If this is in the Bible, that serves as the checkmate for why I, as an atheist, would reject not just the Bible, but the God of the Bible. Because how in the world would you ever be able to reconcile a God of love and mercy and grace with a God who would command total destruction, no mercy, put to death, not just soldiers, not just leaders, not just you know everybody, including infants, cattle, sheep, camels, donkeys. So this is a major stumbling block. And actually a few years ago, um, I was reminded in a video that I put in this summit this Friday that there was actually a pretty prominent worship leader who um, was, uh, you know, kind of deconverted from the Christian faith because of this text. It was such a stumbling block. They said, I can't worship a God who would command this. And so this is really important for us, not just in the context of Saul's story, but also as a lesson to how we should approach texts when we um, when they strike us as morally offensive and when they uh, signal to us that God can't be trusted or that God is evil or wicked and we want to kind of slow down that reaction long enough to say are there other factors in play that we might want to consider before we jump to that kind of conclusion because one of the things that I think you always want to be aware of, as it, you know, ironically talking about studying history, is that these aren't texts that Jewish believers nor Christian believers for 2,000 years, generally speaking, said, oh, we don't know what to do with this. Flip the table. This is awful. And in fact, Jewish believers, although they will recognize some tension there, especially um, um, modern believers who are trying to think through what this reveals about God's character. For much of Jewish history, this is seen as something to celebrate. Which either means there's something weird going on with Jewish and early Christian theology, or our cultural location is keeping us from seeing something that might at least soften the arrogance with which we'd approach a text like this and say, oh, see, this is ridiculous. Who'd worship a God like this? I'm going to give up on the whole faith or Christian project. So here's some context. This does not solve all of the tension points, but it is context that ought to give us pause if our reflexive reaction is to say, ah, look at, look at how awful God is. First, and this is something that's very difficult for us to connect with, the ancient world was super brutal. Like it was just brutal in a way that is... I really, I think it's easy to say, we, we just don't, we can't even get in the stratospheric orbit of how harsh and difficult life was, especially in uh, the Middle East during this time in history. In many situations, violence did solve problems in an ancient context. There was momentum of evil, 
that the only way to deal with it, because there weren't legal courts, there weren't uh, negotiation strategies, you could only bring violence to bear if you wanted evil to be constrained. Un an unwillingness to bring violence to bear on evil in many contexts meant you were inviting evil to continue. We have a different kind of policing, judicial system of um, responses that we can bring to bear, right? Even against Russia, right? We don't have to bomb them. We can just sanction them. We have different tools at our disposal. There's not many tools at disposal in the ancient world. Second, in a brutal and harsh, harsh region, the Amalekites were infamous for their brutality. They're actually known beyond the biblical record. They're known to the Babylonians. They were known to the Egyptians. They were known... Um, uh, the uh, ancient tablets called the Amarna tablets. They were uh, referred to as the plunderers. And we might associate it with like kind of like Viking, like Viking as a verb. Those whose existence was built off the domination and violent exploitation of other people. So they were known for their unrelenting brutality and cruelty and indiscriminate evil. Even some very, very basic Google foo will very quickly bring you to a place to say, oh, this is a culture, this is a way of life for a people that wasn't, it'd be very difficult for you to try and make the case that was kind of like, oh, some light and darkness here. Like this is like, you know, they could have used a little bit more mercy over here, but they had this going for them. It was a culture built from the ground up in all kinds of ways on violence and exploitation and indiscriminate evil. And more than one commentator will say that the Amalekites in history acted as if they were the embodiment of a kind of sociopathic, violent um, culture, anti-God culture. If God is the author of life, they wanted to be the authors of death and destruction. Here are some traits of uh, sociopathy which exist in people today, but one to three percent of the population are diagnosable sociopaths. Lack of empathy for other people, little to no genuine remorse, lying and deceit, um, no problem exploiting other people. They have a sense of superiority over others. They have little regard for what is right or wrong. They believe that whatever rules people think they should live by don't apply to them, and they are predisposed to aggression and hostility. So again, you walk down 100 people on Baker Street, one to three will be operating in a controlled way, likely, out of that disposition. But what I want you to think about is what would a culture look like that literally, intentionally enculturated and reinforced those things? Not as like outliers, but actually said, that's the point of life. That's what it's all about. And from the time you're knee-high to a grasshopper, everything in the culture, the traditions, the, the rituals, the stories that you tell, how you frame things, is all bent in that direction. The violent, indiscriminate exploitation of other people. Why? Because we can. This week, Ukrainian journalist Olga Tokaryuk tweeted the following. She said, frankly, I cannot 
Tweet all the terrible news we are getting in Ukraine every day. Each day, more and more personal stories of people who were killed, raped, tortured. All normal people looking like our next-door neighbors. It makes me feel sick. It fills me with so much anger and hate. Now, in the face of that kind of evil, what do you propose God does? What would you do? And what if a culture had developed where what that journalist is talking about is celebrated? And what if that culture continued for hundreds of years? See, if, if we, in our, historically speaking, bubble-wrapped existence, are tempted to look at God's command to bring total destruction upon the Amalekites with contempt, then we ought to again pause and say, why didn't the early Jewish thinkers and writers have any problem with this text? Why didn't they say? Why wasn't Saul or Samuel's reaction? What, God? Really? You want us to wipe out the Amalekites? God, that seems super emotionally overreactive. It's just... Well, no, that's the wrong frame. I was going to say, it's just, it is what it is. No, it's not. It's actually, they aren't shocked. They're relieved. And again, I'm not trying to argue this solves all the tension points of a text like this. But it helps us to be sensitized to a context that is foreign to ours. That we might mistakenly take God to be the bad guy in this scenario because of our ignorance or our naivete or our distance from that cultural moment. All the Israelites are about to enter the promised land years before um, these events happening in 1 Samuel 15. And God says to them, I want you to remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came up out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. So the Amalekites targeted the weak and the weary and the infirmed and the most vulnerable in Israel for, like, for sport. And God saw that as a sin of the highest order and a sin that had to be judged severely to send a message, both to Israel and to the other nations. Verse 19, When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land that He is giving you, to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. And so hundreds of years later, which if you're going to argue that God's cruel, you could make the argument, why did God allow them to exist for that long? Not why did God wipe them out? That's a different message. But I think we can see the long-suffering and patience of God to offer them a chance to repent. And then in God's perspective, He... He says this is now is the time to execute judgment. And it's severe. It's, it's absolutely severe. There's no way of getting around this. Everything belonging to the Amalekites is to be destroyed. And part of the reason is, and this is where we miss, we're like, oh, this is awful. Like women, children, cattle, like everything. And again, we want to just, not that this is makes for smooth sailing through this text, but we want to, understand that the way you benefited from war in an ancient context was to conquer a people and take their women and slave, children as slaves and take their women as forced brides to increase your population and take their livestock as economic, economic advantage. 
And so in one sense, God is saying, you're going to destroy everything of the Amalekites. Do you know why? Because I don't take any pleasure in what I'm about to do, and you're not going to take any pleasure in it either, and you're not going to gain from it. This is a severe tactical strike, and I don't want anybody in Israel to think, oh, like we get to like benefit from this. God says, no, everything is to be destroyed. And that lines up with what God says in Ezekiel 33, where he says, as surely as I live, I'd take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I'd rather they turn from their ways and live. But God in his sovereignty says, the sin of the Amalekites have reached their fill and it's actually, it would be unjust for me not to intervene in this severe way. Back to 1 Samuel 15. So verse 4, so Saul summoned the men, mustered them. He says to a group in verse 6 called the uh, the Canaanites go away. You, you know, you're not going to be destroyed along with the Amalekites because you showed kindness to the Israelites. So again, this is an indiscriminate bloodlust against just other ethnicities in the region. This is a tactical strike against a culture that is in ways that is hard for us to wrap our heads around. Anti-Christ, anti-God, anti-life. Verse 7, Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havala to Shur near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites alive and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat and the lambs, everything that was good. And they were unwilling to destroy completely, sorry, and they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. So they didn't destroy the really, really good stuff, but they destroyed the stuff that we're like, yeah, this is worthless. So there's a kind of a selective obedience happening here. And it's not too difficult to realize you're looking at all this cattle, all this gain you can take from this uh, fulfillment of this command and to say like, would it be so wrong to benefit from it personally? Like God commanded all, but like all is like a, that has a, lexicographical range of meaning, right? Like, is all all, or is it like most? So there's partial obedience here. And then the word of the Lord came to Samuel in verse 10. I regret that I have made Saul king because he turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. And Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel is really disturbed in his soul about Saul's partial obedience. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, oh, Saul's not here. He's gone to Carmel. Um, he's gone there to set up a monument in his own honor. Right? That's something to underline. Right? It's like, oh, I just want people to know this is an amazing victory over the Amalekites. Like, I did that. That was me. Just, I don't want to make a lot of fanfare. I just want to put something up so that people go into and fro. And, and he's turned down and gone, sorry, he's turned and gone down to Gilgal. And when Samuel... Uh, reached him, Saul said, Oh, Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. And then you've got this quite famous line in Scripture. It's one of the, one of the few, like, kind of like, you want to talk about a gotcha moment? This is a gotcha moment in Scripture. And Samuel says, Well, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? And what's the lowing of cattle that I hear? Oh, Samuel, God bless. Praise the Lord, brother. Like, I did it. I fulfilled God's commands. And Samuel's like, really? I, I can hear your disobedience. 
Like it's not even... Saul said, well, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites and they spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Did you catch something in there that is a not so subtle indicator of Saul's heart? The Lord your God. Not the Lord my God. Samuel says, oh, they took it. It was actually a good intention though. They wanted to sacrifice and honor the Lord your God. That is not a, <laughs> that's not subtle. Like, it's right there, right? He's distancing. And we're seeing this from Saul all the time. He, he has a distance in his relationship with God. He knows he needs to do certain things. He, needs to know, he knows he needs to jump through certain religious hoops. But there's not a real surrendered will and heart to God. And we're seeing it on display here. And Samuel says, enough. I don't know if he says it like a whisper. If he's like, enough. He's like, shut up. No, shut your mouth. I've heard enough. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me. And then Saul's like, okay, tell me. And he said, Samuel conveys the message and he says, although you were once small in your own eyes. So again, another confirmation that Saul saw himself, even though he was a head taller, he was handsome, and he looked the part, he saw himself as small and insignificant. He was driven by insecurities. Did you not become the head of the tribe of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and He sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder? Why did you operate out of greed and entitlement as a leader and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? And Saul said, but I did obey the Lord. I went on a mission to to the Lord assigned me. And I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took the sheep and the cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. So again, we're seeing another pattern. right? Blame shifting. We've seen this before in Saul's life. I obeyed. It's the soldiers. You want to point fingers, point it at them. And he doesn't understand his symbolic significance and the power that he has as king, right? He sees some soldiers being like, hey, we're going to take the best of it. No, God said wipe it out completely. He's totally blame shifting. And then Samuel says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices inasmuch as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Samuel is challenging Saul and saying, even if your hearts were in the right place and this was about somehow honoring God through this battle, wouldn't the highest form of honor have just been to do what he said? And not worry about the consequences of not being able to have some big religious ceremony? Right? And this is a key, right? Like being in right relationship with God is more important than formal religious obedience and ceremony because God sees the heart of worship. And what he wants ultimately is hearts that are surrendered to him that want to live and bless and honor him. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. That's Samuel's words to Saul. And then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men and so I gave in to them. Now we see it, right? He has this fear of man. He wants to please. He's a people pleaser. 
wants to look around and say, well, they, they want this, and yeah, I mean, God didn't, you know. Yeah, guys, go ahead and take it. That'd be good. He's not trusting that by obeying God, he'll be establish his kingdom. He's trying to please men and the crowds. And he says, now I beg you, forgive me my sin and come back to me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of him, the hem of his robe, and it tore. Tears. And I picture this really dramatic moment where Samuel just kind of slowly turns back to Saul and Saul's holding this torn piece of cloth. And Samuel says, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. And Saul replied, I've sinned. But please, please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Right? Saul is still trying to save face publicly. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel changes his mind. He goes back with Saul. And Saul worshiped the Lord. And then Samuel said, bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to them and changed. This is a public thing. This is part of public worship. This is, um, this is not done in secret. So Agag, a king of the Amalekites, comes to Samuel in chains. And he's thinking like, the worst is over. I've already been presented to Saul. He was kind of like, I'm going to be kept as his trophy. Not a glorious life, but at least I'm alive. He says to himself, surely the bitterness of death has passed. I've dodged that bullet. Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so your mother will be childless among women. It's a different way of, you lived by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. And then Samuel put Agag to death which is the most sanitized translation of the Hebrew you could possibly put up with. And Ivy does it. I understand why they do it. Because in Hebrew, it is literally hacked Agag to death or hew him to pieces. Before the Lord at Gilgal as a sacrifice, as like, a, like an animal sacrifice. Yeah. Whoa. And that's how, that's how we're supposed to feel. Like, Whoa. Samuel finishes what Saul was supposed to. And he puts the exclamation mark. This is what obedience looks like. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul until the day Saul died, he did not go and see Saul. Sorry, until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Yeah, this is a heavy, this is a dark passage. But it's a good passage to inhabit as you move towards Good Friday and Easter for two reasons. Number one is it should prompt us to really ask, do you have, like, like, like do you honestly have a real relationship with God? One that is born of like genuine repentance? Because what you see in Saul is he's, he's living in a religious space and he's using religious language and he's participating in religious ceremonies. And I go to church and I do the Bible studies and um, I've even got a Bible app on my phone and I believe in being a good person and I attend church. Um, and all of those things can be simply ceremonial. They can, they can be trappings that fool you 
Maybe fool other people. Um, maybe it's not meant to be manipulative. Maybe it is to kind of present a persona. But it won't fool God if it's not real. If it's not coming from a heart that is surrendered to Him. The second covenant affirmation, the thing that's second most important to us is to emphasize that to be a Christian means to um, be under the power and influence of a new birth where we have surrendered our wills to Jesus. That doesn't mean that we've had some kind of like born-again experience where we've seen in psychedelic and into the third heaven and it doesn't necessarily mean we've had this profound, fantastical religious experience, but to be born again is to say, Jesus, I need your forgiveness. I need your love. I need your life. I need your hope. I don't want you to be an accessory in my life. I want you to be on the throne of my heart. I don't even exactly know all that that means, but I want to learn and I'm convinced that that is the path to life and truth and salvation. I need your help. I need your rescue. So it's not just a ceremonial going through the motions kind of commitment, but have you presented your will to God, your life? I'm, I'm trying to use different language, right? Like the totality of who you are and say, I want to serve you. I want to give my life for you. And not just as a one-off, but as Romans says, as a living sacrifice, as an ongoing sacrifice. Romans 12 says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies or your lives as a living sacrifice, ongoing. Not like, well, I gave my life to Jesus back at 13 at this Christian camp. And now I just kind of like pop into the Bible every once in a while when things go rough. That's not a living sacrifice. Uh, living sacrifice is holy and pleasing to God. It's true and pr proper worship. Where we're not conforming to the pattern of this world, but we're learning to be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we can test what God's will is, His good, pleasing, perfect will, and then live more and more aligned to it. Live into it. So are we learning... Are we heeding the warning of Saul's life that you can have the trappings of looking the part religiously, but not a heart that's surrendered to God? And the second thing that to me this passage reminds us of and creates a tension point for us and helps us enter into the Good Friday story quite well is that it, it shows the severe goodness of God. God can be good and severe at the same time. And there are situations where we're confronted with evil that is so out of control to not bring severe judgment on it, you would never be able to reconcile that with love. Now, those might be few and far between, those situations. But I think what we're seeing in the text this morning is one. God can be good and severe at the same time. And that's hard for our imaginations to hold together, especially in a context where we're constantly invited to just think about God through the lens of love and mercy and grace and maybe sometimes not recalibrate that with, well, those will bring certain judgments and condemnations to bear. And we see the severe goodness of God made most manifest, not in God's condemnation against His enemies, but the severe condemnation and judgment that he allows to come upon himself. Romans 5 says, you see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. But for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. So you have a really inspirational figure. Maybe you have someone in your life, a family member, or just a hero 
You know, there's probably a lot of people right now that would say, wow, I'm, I'm inspired by Vladimir Zelensky's courage. I'd take a bullet for that guy. So it's possible. You die for a really good person. But this is how God demonstrates his love for us. While we were still Amalekites, Christ died for us. While there was actually nothing in humanity that says, oh, we've, we've earned the right to be redeemed and restored. We could have fallen under this kind of condemnation. Christ dies and takes, absorbs that cost in Himself because He sees beyond our rejection, beyond our evil. He sees through that and says there's something of value there and I want to restore you. I love you. I don't want you to be lost forever. And when Jesus dies, the Bible says that the curtain in the temple is torn in two And that's significant because Saul's tearing of Samuel's robe signifies Saul is now cut off from his inheritance. He's he's cut off from a royal legacy because of his partial obedience. But the tearing of the temple symbolizes, oh, because of Christ's full obedience, he drinks the cup of judgment to the last bitter drop. Now the barrier separating the full presence of God has been removed. And anyone who places their trust in Christ can now enter into eternal life that starts now and continues on forever. At the cross, there's a severe mercy, but it comes with a severe judgment, but a judgment that shows a severe goodness. Jesus taking upon Himself our sin, our failure, our penalty, our darkness, our condemnation. And Isaiah says it this way, it says, by His wounds we're healed. He was torn apart so that we can be made whole. And so if you haven't, or if you've been playing um, casual in your relationship with God, turn to Christ. Turn to Him. Put your trust in Him. Commit the rest of your life to Him. Leave ceremonial religion behind and follow Him in fullness of heart and mind and spirit. Let's pray. Jesus, as we close out this chapter and then begin to shift our attention towards Good Friday and Easter, prepare our hearts. Prepare our hearts. Help us to see this severe goodness, this severe mercy. May it transform us. May it fill our hearts with gratitude. We love You. Thank You for Your grace in our lives. Keep us from false, superficial, ceremonial religion by by your Spirit through your Word. Amen.